Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Mercy Romero, author of Toward Camden, published last year by Duke University Press. Dr. Romero, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Stentor. So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Yeah. Um, so I'm uh, from Camden, New Jersey. Um, I have a PhD in ethnic studies uh, from UC Berkeley. And the book is um, came from uh, a question that uh, I started thinking about as a graduate student, um, really kind of writing my dissertation. Um, and then it stayed with me uh, as I started working uh, in my job. And uh, it's something that I kind of wanted to return to, which was the question of um, where is home uh, and thinking about this vacant lot that I grew up across the street from in Camden in the Kramer Hill neighborhood. Um, and so the book kind of uh, emerges from that kind of uh, concern for me and curiosity really of watching this vacant lot transform uh from a, an abandoned house to a vacant lot and all the kind of end of the storytelling uh, and memory work starts there for me with this project. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that vacant lot. Cause it's, it's kind of one of the main characters uh, of the book uh, and it goes through a lot of different transformations that you tie into a lot of the um, you know thoughts that you have about Camden. So can you tell us a bit about this lot and how it's changed and, and what that means about the city? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's kind of, you know, Camden, when I was growing up, there were tons of uh, abandoned buildings, and I write about this in the book, and vacant houses as part of um, my imagination um, and the landscape of my childhood and girlhood um, and uh, going home I watched 
all those places kind of stay in that condition and more um, kind of um, go to ruin um, in some ways. And so um, that lot across the street uh, from my parents' house, which was also my grandmother's house, um, is at Lincoln Avenue and North 27th Street. And um, I write about this a lot in the book, just sort of um, what it meant to kind of be to grow up in front of this house that was a gathering place for so many um, young folks in our neighborhood. Um, and we all had a kind of, I would say like an intimate relationship to that space, but it was also really troubled. Um, and um, over the course of, I write about in, God, what year was that? 1991, um, the mischief night fires that transformed what was this, big old house to um, kind of becoming becoming an empty lot, becoming a, a space on the landscape where there was no structure, but people continued to gather there in different ways. And I kind of go through that in the book. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. And I realized about halfway through reading the book that like, you're giving the exact address of this lot that you're talking <laughs> about. And so I was like, wait, I could just go on like Google street view and look at this. And it actually, it really helped. Like, yeah, I did. And it really helped kind of like solidify in my mind what I was, you know, what I was reading about when you were talking about this place. Cause I could see it. And, you know, cause you talk about how the, the sort of latest, uh, transformation of the lot as it's become this kind of like parking lot for the church across the street and you talked about the like um the chain link fence that's around it like one of the short the short kind of fences and i could just see it there i'm like oh yeah um yeah it's so interesting that that space i mean that was you know and i and i talk about this again it's just like um I didn't expect when I was working on this book that my parents' uh, house would be lost to us and that um, I would kind of lose my writing place um, and end up um, writing outside and then ended up, end up kind of gathering on that corner myself, standing on that corner, walking around the neighborhood, but finding a kind of, um, I describe it as a kind of strange safety across the street. Uh, where that parent, my where my parents' house became a different kind of object to me, one that I felt um, was too big to approach. So the lot was, I mean, I, that's just the nature of experience, right? And writing a project where it's just it shocked the hell out of me, because um, I wasn't able, you know, I I never hung out there on that exact corner in that lot, <sighs> although it was such a big part of um, our neighborhood and 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 like i said my visual landscape yeah and then your parents house is kind of the other you know major location that's kind of woven through the the book and kind of your uh you know figuring out your feelings about it um and you kind of gave the the spoiler there i guess that uh you know the, the house is no longer owned by your family and that's kind of how the book ends with you know grappling with that so can you say a little bit about that like you know what the house meant and you know how it ended up passing on to a a new owner by the end of the book yeah um so 
It's interesting too to talk about this um, piece of writing for me as a book. Um, it's such a, it was um, a way of figuring out a really, a, like I said, it was this intellectual project that turned into um, a different kind of tool for understanding what my family was going to was going through and continues to go through um, around uh, the loss of this, of this home and this house for us, really the house. So yeah, that was my grandma's house. I don't even know when she bought that house, but I, um, and she passed away in December, been over a year now. Um, so, um, I didn't get a chance to talk to her about any of this. Um, but she moved at some point and then gave that house to my parents we moved there when I was about like in fourth grade. Um, and uh, that house, and I've written about this in another short piece that, uh, or essay that I was published in uh, biography. Um, all of my dad's family like stayed in that house at different points, uh, you know, during our history with that house. Um, and sometimes all of us at, at the same time. Um, and so I knew that when I was a little, very little, we had the living room and, um, we all slept in the living room and then different members of our house, of our family were slept in different rooms in the house. My grandfather, grandmother rather, uh, had a sewing operation that she did in the house. So it, it has, um, it has like a long life, um, for me, uh, a very rich life in terms of, um, all the kinds of experiences and memories that my family created there together. Um, the house went in, I want to say, geez, I don't even know, like some years ago, I, my uh, dad left and then my mom left uh, and the house foreclosed. Um, and this happened while I was still working on the book. Uh, and um, I, you know, it was obviously really painful experience for, for me and I can only speak for myself um but it took me by surprise and I and I and I kind of dwell on this a little bit in, in the work uh you know so many people of course have lost their homes and the, there was a the kind of characteristic of um vacancy uh, in our neighborhood and all throughout the city of Camden um and I was thinking about that and not expecting those um, that kind of structural loss to touch my family in such an intimate way, um, and uh, it's still something that shocks and uh, and angers me, particularly after our our grandmother has passed away, realizing that the house goes further back and um, was was hers, um, and I and I. And I, um, I'm still kind of coming to terms with that. It doesn't have anything to do with the book anymore. It's just uh, kind of what the book taught me, um, I guess, is a, a lesson that continues to inform my kind of uh, coming to terms and kind of grieving uh, that, that loss for our family and turning it around so that it can mean lots of different things for us and enable us to kind of continue to move in the world. Um, but it's a, you know, in terms of, and I'm, I'm speaking, you know, symbolically and, and, and emotionally and, and as a writer and a creative, but of course this means so much in terms of the loss of like structural wealth uh, that, you know, 
what a house can mean for uh, a family in terms of inheritance and capital accumulation and all that stuff, um, which I'm not particularly invested in as a human being, but it bears um, all kinds of effects. It still bears effects on my family, right? Yeah, and I think the the book does a good job of you know dealing with these very personal aspects that you've been talking about uh, for the last little bit here and kind of contextualizing them with some of the larger kind of structural issues about, you know, urban redevelopment and racialized capitalism and these kinds of things that are, uh, you know, affecting the city of Camden as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, I was kind of trying to move in different directions and teach myself and gather from everything that I've learned and continue to learn from my mentors and teachers and fields that we're all a part of, right. Um, to understand and to teach, um, about this is one thing. And then she then hold on for dear life, right? Like you're trying to figure out damn what's happening in my family right now. And, uh, and, um, kind of continue to um, create and uh, be hopeful and all those things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to draw strength. And so the, the, uh, the intellectual tools and that, and uh, a political awareness is a real big part of, um, of my creative life and the life of this work, right? And moving with and through memory and false memory and fragments and all of that. Yeah. And so speaking of intellectual tools, um, you know, throughout the book, you're, you're engaging with a bunch of other people who have, you know, other thinkers and people whose ideas are helping you figure out what's going on. And it includes a range of, you know, kind of traditional academic scholarly uh, sources. But then you also talk about people who are kind of community leaders and people who are artists. Um, so could you talk about maybe a few of the people that have really shaped your um, thinking about Camden and about you know, the story that you're telling in the book? Yeah. I mean, gosh, I'd start, of course, with my parents um, as intellectuals. Um, they uh, created um, a way of being that was passed down and is like foundational to um, how I approach living and loving and thinking and all of that um uh each of them my mother and my father um and that means a lot to me because it's um their curiosity um and their sense of study and uh wonder and and their writing and um openness is um it's just really foundational to um to i think how i built tried to build relation in the book um, and a kind of tenderness um, toward um, the neighborhood and other people um, and storytelling itself. Um, I think like I'm really inspired by the poets like Martina Spada, who I start the book with. Um, it's, I did, I actually, it ends <laughs> that, you know, your prologue is like the last, I was like the last thing that I wrote. Um, so in many ways it kind of starts and ends there for me in a really kind of special way. Um, 
but uh, Rick Barrett, who I also mentioned as, as a poet that um, that I'm just kind of discovering his work and um, it's profoundly moving to me. So and Fred Moten's work, of course, um, I just pulled from the fragment from before that opens up the, the, um, the first chapter. But I've, um, I think that like Moten as a poet and as an intellectual is someone who resonates with me. Um, I feel his work in a, at another register, uh, like the deepest intellectual part of me, uh, or I would say like my mind kind of um, gets a way to, finds a way to kind of move through his writing and work. So that's super cool and inspiring. Howard Gillette, who uh, is a historian and wrote the um, book Camden After the Fall, um, has been a really wonderful supporter, um, over the years, um, and has taught me a lot in terms of the work that he's, that he did as a historian in Camden. Um, uh, and then, you know, I, Saidia Hartman also, who I've had the real wonderful privilege of working with as a student and during graduate school, um, and then approaching her work as a reader, um, her use of, um, archives and memory and memoir um, in Lose Your Mother in particular, um, just was a real, really transformative for me uh, to, to read that work. I continue to read it and teach it. And um, uh, it's, it's just a, like, it's a tool. Um, and then of course, um, this Latina feminist like Norma Alacón and, and, and Gloria Saldúa's Borderlands, um, you know, they, the, these writers, women of color, were making moves um, and working in the '70s and '80s. Um, and I'm a, I'm a, that's an intellectual descendant of of those scholars um, in, in so many ways. And so, um, those are some of the sort of folks that come to mind, and some of the works that um, that I hope that the book is uh, is part of that. I know, I know it. it's part of that intellectual, um, tradi- those intellectual traditions. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. and it's, you know, cool to think about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you've got a lot of these different, um, you know, people that you're kind of bouncing off of as you're, you're writing, you know, it's not like I've, you know, come across some books that it's like, all right, so my analysis, this is Foucault and everything is based on Foucault. You know, they've got like one, one perspective or one person that they're, they're drawing from. Um, and that's very much not what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think I could. I mean, you know, you got to reach, you're, you're, you're pulling from all the beauty and the great, the great teachers who come across your, your life, right? Like you're, you're, you're as a student, um, as a, as a reader, it's, I'm trying to figure out some, uh, a way of, um, navigating something that feels damn near impossible, uh, which is what happened in the book. There are all of those, there's a, the, the, what the experiences that I'm encountering or that I'm writing into being, it's like, I have to move in different directions, right? Cause you're just, uh, one is not enough one field is not if I'm trained as an interdisciplinary scholar too, right? Ethnic studies is an interdisciplinary field and that's one of its strengths and, and part of its endurance. 
Yeah, and I was, you know, this is the geography channel. Um, and I, I actually proposed uh, to you to, to bring you on before I had even uh, read the book. I just read like the synopsis and I was like, oh, this, this sounds like this would be cool and, and relevant. And then, you know, and I saw that, you know, you're not like a geographer by training or anything, but then you cited some geographers, you know. Uh, yeah, so I, I got to, I audited a class with um, Ruthie Gilmore when I was, at Berkeley, I got to sit in on one of her classes, and I got really sick at the end of that class. I had to leave, but um, which is where the book starts. But um, yeah, she she's brilliant, and um, and Clyde Woods, you know, it's like I'm reading all all over the place, and and Clyde Woods' work. I mean, I just I, I wish I could have got to meet him. I wish I could give him the book, uh, because I do feel, um, particularly with him, I feel like. Wow, um, he would be he would be proud, like you did that, sister. You know what I mean? Uh, and and, and um, yeah, so there's some geographers there. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off so another person that comes up a lot in the book um i was a little surprised at how often um he comes up is walt whitman um who you know obviously he lived in camden he's kind of one of the the notables of uh the history of the city um i was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about like why you came back to to him and uh you know, numerous times yeah. through the book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just part of what you said. You know what I mean? Like growing up in Camden, it's like, who is this Whitman? And then my dad um, is a, I guess he he's a self described Whit maniac, <laughs> <laughs> and um, a lover of of literature and, and and poetry. But I do think that you know, for him, Whitman um, goes deep. You know, that's one of the poets that he's kind of carrying around for a lifetime, um, carrying on his poetry. You know, those poems that you that you remember, or those lines that kind of buoy you. Um, and so, yeah, I um, was really interested in the life of these houses. And here's this poet's house that is uh, preserved. And there's such a great it was such a great effort to keep it as a as a landmark and keep it as a historic house in the city where houses are falling apart um, and regularly demolished. So, you know, it's it has that kind of it, it had that kind of pull for me. It, it had more of a pull as a structure than the actual poet, although I love the poem 
the poetry too. It's the history of the house and the uses of the house now that kind of um, are interesting to me. Um, and um, once I got to kind of dwelling in like Whitman's writing and thinking through his conversations with Trouble, um, I just felt like really kind of delighted and also kind of grossed out by some of the like racism and stuff. Um, so there's a, there's a force there, uh, that kind of, for me was important to, um, man, I just kept thinking about it. Um, and, um, I think I write about this in the book. I started dreaming about Whitman's house and being in his house. And then when I found Eleanor Ray, oh man, I thought it was so awesome that she was the um, curator of the house for so long. And she was so beautiful and uh, such an interesting figure. And then she had that little piece published. I, I think it's in the, the Walt Whitman review. And I talk about it in the book um, about, you know, what it meant for her to to grow up next to that house and to play there and um, and then her, you know, becoming a great lover of uh, Whitman's poetry, like my dad. Right. So, um, yeah, it's it's I'm so glad that I, I was able to, to uh, kind of keep Whitman in the mix. Um, and I think, you know, he re- like I said, he he liked being in the mix of things, too. So um, it's a kind of tribute to that you know, to that, the poet's way and the messiness of it all. Yeah. And and that does make an interesting, you know, kind of set of contrasts with the fate of his house that's being so actively preserved and, you know, integrated into the city's image because, you know, there's another kind of theme that runs through this is just kind of the public image that Camden has, that it was this like icon of like rust belt decay, you know, city that was losing everything and falling apart. But then it's more recently been held up as this exemplar of like redevelopment and renewal and, you know, big projects that they've tried to do to, you know, bring people into the, the city um, and, you know, it gets talked about a lot in terms of like policing reform and stuff. You mentioned the big speech that Barack Obama gave there, um, you know, trying to hold up the city as this kind of, uh, you know, model for for other cities. So you've all got all this stuff going on at this kind of uh, big citywide level. And then, you know, your book kind of shows how any of that does or doesn't come down to the the level of the the neighborhood uh, where you are living and some of the, the specific uh, you know communities that you are part of there right right yeah so it's so it's like um that was really interesting for me to kind of think around a place like the croc center that opened um, on Harrison Avenue and I write about it and that was like a huge dump when I was growing up and um, you know, what does it mean for goodwill to come and create this like beautiful structure and there's a pool in there, there's a daycare center. I mean, it's like, wow, I could never imagine that, you know? Um, but then I think I, I start thinking like, you know, what, what, 
what mess what the messaging is and who it serves and um and why um does or why would um like making oneself legible or a particular kind of renunciation or faith based practice like what why would that um how is that meant to serve uh the people um and what 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 does it obscure um, in terms of the kind of relationships and practices that already exist at the community that make the community right um, so um, so there are a, a lot of contrasts and, and, and contradictions and it's uh, it's real seductive you know to think about like um, festivals and croc centers as um, as a way to kind of like bring back and reform a place. Um, when I always come back to is like, you know, the lives that we had and the lives that people have there are all, are already lively and rich. Right. Um, and what we're, what we're ending up talking about is white supremacy. Um, and, uh, um, what renewal and, um, redevelopment mean as, as, uh, when they are filtered through, uh, white supremacy and that always leads to our dispossession so it's it's it, it's some sinister shit <laughs> <laughs> you know and it, and it and it's it it puts me at odds a lot of times with some real and there's some beautiful people working um at these places and working and creating festivals and and um and programming and and all of that in camden and um in other places across the country um and so how do we kind of um think about this work that's real and that matters but then that can that simultaneously um works against us in some way um and in, in real profound ways for me as, as a as a scholar so i you know i'm i try to think about those kind those questions in the book and it's not easy yeah, and I think a lot of the the complexity of those questions comes through uh, in the book. You know, you're not offering us any easy answers to any of the stuff that you're that you're writing about, right? Yeah, that was important to me. You know, to kind of create a a frame um, and to keep the questions open. Um, yeah, and uh, and and I'm I'm glad to hear. Thank you so much for reading the work too. Oh, yeah. beautiful <laughs> yeah and it, it's you know it's a book that's got a lot of interesting stuff going on in it and it's just a, a really beautifully written book as well right. um, yeah thank you that's cool so i want to actually circle back now to the title of the book um and i just wanted to ask you why you chose the word toward uh to uh, to title the book well, it's, yeah, there's a lot of different reasons. I mean, it, it's, uh, it partly keeps open that, you know, that it, it keeps it open. Uh, it's not, you know, in or about, um, but there's a kind of, uh, thoughtful reaching or dwelling with, um, but it preserves the kind of space, uh, without, I didn't want to kind of create an enclosure. Um, the other, uh, it's a um, 
his name William Carlos Williams Patterson. I think it ends or it's like a, toward the end of the book. It's been a while since I read it and tried to feel it and get it uh, as a collection. But he's got this lot that's toward Camden is like the figure that's sitting and staring off toward Camden. It's like supposed to be Whitman, I guess. Um, and so that's also pulled from there. Um, and then I tried to dwell with um, the toward Camden in the prologue when we have um, uh, Rafael Horacio, the, the person that I write about and kind of create this character with a slash um, who was killed by the police in Camden in, in 1971. Um, I write about him going toward Camden. Uh, so I'm holding that that language there. And then also the book opens the first chapter with um, my parents picking me up from the airport and us heading toward Camden. So for me, it's um, the, the language is uh, I'm, I'm building with it throughout the work, you know, the cover and then the prologue and the first chapter. And then, then sort of reaching toward William Carlos Williams and his figuration of Whitman too. Okay, well, hopefully, I think we've we've given uh, our listeners enough to to um, you know get them interested in checking out the book. So, oh, yeah, like to, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I'd like to wrap things up by asking what you're working on next. Uh, what kind of projects do you have now that this book is out? Yeah, I'm I'm working on some creative writing. Um, and then I'm going to be at the Schomburg um, in New York looking through these archives, Alberta Hunter papers uh, and the archives they have of, of black nursing. And I'm trying to think about um, Goldwater Memorial Hospital on Roosevelt Island uh, as um, a place where the great Puerto Rican poet Julio de Burgos um, spent some time and composed her two English language poems there. So I'm looking at um, some archives that are at the Schomburg to think about histories of black nursing and then to also take a kind of route into um, the histories of Goldwater Memorial Hospital where Al and Alberta Hunter, whose papers I'm looking at, she was a nurse there for 20 years and also this uh, blues and jazz singer, of course. So I'm kind of getting at uh, this hospital in a kind of roundabout way through different kinds of archives. Um, so I got a few different right. things I'm working on. Yeah. That, all, yeah. that sounds really interesting. Um, <laughs> so thank yeah. you so much for coming on thank the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for reading the work and spending time thinking about it with me. I really Absolutely. means a lot. So you just heard a conversation with Mercy Romero, author of Toward Camden, published last year by Duke University Press. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.